Cell therapies are going to be advanced and commercialized around the world. Why would we not want to play a role in that happening and take a leadership position so that Canadian stakeholders, Canadian innovation, Canadian leadership has its hands or the tentacles on amazing things happening all over the world? It's not about hoarding it all in Canada. It's about building a global ecosystem, a global market. But let's make sure we're there and that we get some benefit to that because then we can reinvest that benefit back into our ecosystem here and make it sustainable, do more around cell therapy, but also invest in other great Canadian innovations that'll happen along the way. Hi, welcome back to NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. I'm Jim Wilson, and our guest this week is Michael May, President and CEO of the Centre for Commercialization of Regenerative Medicine. Michael is someone I've had the pleasure of meeting on a number of occasions, and he's one of those people you just know you're going to like. He's focused, incredibly generous with his time, and one of the true national leaders in Canada's life sciences community. Michael's story is similar to many of the guests we've had on our show in that it's not a linear path, nor was it planned. You'll hear that his success is based on hard work, being open to opportunity when it presents itself, and sometimes learning life lessons from family pets. Before we get to our conversation, we'd like to thank the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation and the TMX Group for their support. We also appreciate the sponsorship provided by Admari BioInnovations, OmniaBio, Nova Nordisk Canada, and Bay Area Health Trust. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com slash sponsor. This episode was recorded in 2023. I have the privilege of sitting at this microphone and talking to leaders in Canada's life sciences community about their personal and professional journeys, and I'm particularly pleased to have today's guests join us. Michael May is CEO of the Centre for Commercialization of Regenerative Medicine in Toronto, and by any measure one of the key leaders and cheerleaders in Canada's life sciences community. Michael, welcome to the NGB Ideas podcast. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Let's dive in. If I may, I'd like to start with your early life. You were born in Burford, Ontario, and I thought I knew Ontario pretty well, but I didn't know where Burford is. Where exactly is it? I was born in Burford, which was tobacco farming country, kind of in between Brantford and Woodstock, Ontario. I also spent a lot of time in Brantford, Ontario as well. So Brantford's really the largest city around that area. But yeah, that's where I grew up. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but is Burford known for anything in particular other than being in the tobacco belt and being a great place to grow up and live? I'm not certain. I'm trying to think of the hockey player that's from Burford, but there's a hockey player from every place in Canada. Adam Henry actually was from Burford. But let me focus on Brantford because a really important influence for me was Alexander Graham Bell was from Brantford. Brantford's a telephone city. He lived there from the time he was 12 until he went off to university. The first long-distance call of the telephone was between Brantford and Paris. You know, Alexander Graham Bell was a fascination for me. He, he designed the first airplane in Canada. He invented the telephone and... I don't think it's a story that we tell often enough that on this river, the Grand River in Ontario, one of the most important inventions in human history, the telephone, 
was invented. And then 100 years later, the smartphone was invented on the same river in Ontario at Blackberry. And these inventions have brought together and caused the world to collaborate in amazing ways. We don't actually celebrate the Grand River and the influence of that river on human achievement. I, I just loved Alexander Graham Bell. I love the idea of invention. I love the idea of leading age technology development. So that was a big influence for me when I was young. Do you still live in the Brantford area? I do. When my second son was born, I moved back to the area and never thought I ever would, but it's an amazing community to raise a family. I come into Toronto every day, but my sons grew up playing hockey and that's the place where Wayne Gretzky was born. When you combine Alexander Graham Bell and Wayne Gretzky and being the heart of Southern Ontario, it's pretty good life actually. So you've been a super commuter before super commuter was a thing. Still am. You know, I missed commuting during COVID because commuting, I realized, was the only time of the day I get to myself. And actually, it's a really nice time to get ready for the day and to process the day. And during COVID, you know, with home office, you know, I didn't get that chance. As always, the grass is always greener. You complain about commuting and then miss it when it doesn't happen. But everything has its value. And it's been a wonderful community to live in. But it, obviously, for me, Toronto and the research community in Toronto and the growth of the industry has been the stepping stone for a really a global vision for CCRM. And that's really the strength of the Toronto and Hamilton and Ontario cell therapy ecosystem. I'm looking to diving into that, but I'd first like to talk more, if I may, about your family. And I understand that your mother was a homemaker, but she also left the house to work as a secretary and that she was a storyteller. What was her name? Could you tell us about her? Catherine, Kathy. My dad called her Cass. All of my team building and social skills and storytelling came from my mother. She had a heart of gold and always saw the positive in everything. Clearly a glass half full person. For me, that has been an important skill in crafting a vision, but also telling that vision and communicating it and also hurting the stakeholders around a vision, that all came from my mother. And where did she work when she left the home? She worked at the local hospital. Thanks to her great social skills and her reputation, I had the best summer job as a high school student. I worked for the hospital from 16 until I went to university, had a great job at the hospital, all thanks to my mother. I read that your father was very loyal, very duty-oriented, and very concerned about integrity and doing the right thing. Could you tell us about him? My father had this strong sense of honor and duty. His father was a military person who was in the Second World War, and he was in charge of the house when his dad went off to war. So he, he early on in his life, had to exercise duty and care for his siblings and for his mom. And so he was always concerned about doing the right thing. And, you know, I think he taught me how to work hard and integrity. He always wanted to do the right thing. He had a career in sales, but later in life, he became an entrepreneur. Where did he sell first? So he worked in the paper industry in Canada. So he worked for a company called Sunoco Paper Products. He retired at 47 from working for anybody else and did some entrepreneurial activity. He did well on the stock market. He worked with others. He never had to work for anybody after he was 47. And that was all about being creative and industrious and committed. Neither of my parents went to university. I'm the first person in my family to ever go to university. 
I knew I was going to university when I was about four years old. Like I absolutely loved school, loved the concept of higher learning and university and Alexander Graham Bell invention and technology. That was all me and me alone. My parents were obviously very supportive of that, but I was the first person in my family and among my siblings to go to university. I understand that you've got a twin sister, an older brother, and another older sister. What's the age difference from the youngest to the oldest? My sister is 10 years older than my twin sister and I, and my brother is eight years older. So it's kind of a bit like two families a decade apart. I'm part of that scenario in my family, too. I hope everyone's still around. Where are you in the pecking order? I'm the youngest by five minutes. I had it easy because I learned from everybody else probably reminded of that on a regular basis. It sounds like you grew up in a pretty busy household. We did. When I grew up, my older brother and sister were teenagers, so lots of activity there. And then my twin sister and I, we were really siblings, like I said, in the second family. Big family, very busy, great family, very loyal, connected, committed family. That's great. You mentioned that you knew from a very, very young age that you were going to end up going to university. Were there any subjects in particular that you gravitated towards when you were young? I really embraced school. I loved everything and was very competitive academically. I kind of wanted to be the best at everything, but it was really driven by a high level of curiosity. You know, I love the arts. I love languages, all the sciences, maths, and I took everything. But when I was young, and I found this when my parents passed, there was a book when I was young called Footprints on the Moon, and it was documenting the first humans on the moon, the Apollo mission. And I drew a picture of the Saturn rocket when I was about five or four in a later mission. So I wanted to be an astronaut, actually. That was my dream to be either a quiet rural country physician or an astronaut and ended up somewhere in the middle. I think everybody of our vintage, if I can put it that way, wanted to be an astronaut back then. I remember getting a lunar lander model that I put together and thought I'd be flying that at some point. What about sports? Play any hockey when you were a kid? We mentioned Gretzky earlier. I did play hockey as everybody did. I wanted to play it at a higher level, but with a busy family, I was impossible, but I loved hockey. I loved all sports and always tried to play sports. It's not always at a high level, but I always thought it was important to play sports to balance kind of an academic focus. I learned more about leadership from sports than probably anything else. Being able to play on a team and sports teaches you how to lose. It's impossible to play sports without losing. <laughs> I always found that when I got to university, the people that had the most trouble in university were those that actually had done so well academically that when they all of a sudden were in and amongst many brilliant high achievers, they couldn't manage not being the top. And for me, sports taught me teamwork and then losing. And, and I kind of attribute my social skills to my childhood dog. I can't leave that one without addressing it. Who taught me how to befriend everybody. How can you be a friend with everybody that you come into contact with and kindness and loyalty? That's a good point. That was Pixie. Throughout my life, I've borrowed everything from my family to my pets to my teammates, but was really laser focused on school and leadership from a very young age. Did you have to commute to Brantford to go to high school? I'm assuming you went to elementary in Burford. 
We lived in five different homes back and forth in between Burford and Brantford. So I went to lots of different schools, which for me was easy because I was gregarious and extroverted. My twin sister is more introverted. I always think back that all those moves were probably harder on her. But for me, meeting someone new and making new friends was fun. So you finished high school in 1986? 86, 87, yeah. And you ended up going to the University of Toronto where you pursued a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemical Engineering. First, why U of T? I think it was a mixture of U of T is a world-round university. I mean, it's a top 25 university. A bunch of my friends were going there, and like every teenager, following your friends and being with your friends was important. It was the big city, getting out of the countryside. It was a tough choice because I applied to a bunch of different schools, but it felt right. And of course, I think it was a perfect decision because in the first day of Frosh Week, I met my wife. How could the stars have aligned any better than all of that? What's her name? Jane. And you met during Frosh Week in your first week at U of T? That's right. First day. Wow. So right there, it paid off. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. So why chemical engineering? I chose chemical engineering because there was always a bit of the engineer in me from building things when I was a kid, building rockets and did chemistry in the backyard and the basement, kind of blew things up and stuff. And what I thought is that of all the engineering, chemical seemed closest to medicine. I always wanted, like I said, be a country doctor. I was always fascinated with biology and medicine. So for me, it was just what's the engineering that might connect me with medicine? In doing background research for this interview, it sounds like you're the kind of person who goes through doors just to see what's on the other side. Is that a fair comment? Yeah. For me, there's never a bad pathway or regret. I always have been, you go through a door and you see what's there and there's going to be five other doors and, you know, you go through the next set of doors. Part of that is just the curiosity, the adventure. As a kid, I was always interested in invention, always fascinated with the history of explorers. I spent a lot of time reading about all the explorers, particularly the European explorers in the age of discovery. And so for me, going through doors is just an adventure. Hi, it's Jim. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. And if you are, we'd appreciate you promoting us on social with the hashtag NGBideas. And please remember to click the follow button so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get back to the show. Were your undergraduate years at U of T a bit of a blur? Like, were you studying all the time or were you hitting the brunny on occasion? Absolutely. I mean, it was kind of a work hard, play hard environment. You know, I think that's changed a little bit now. But I mean, the 80s was probably the pinnacle of the classic Animal House University era. For me, those were just a way to build network and make friends and complete adventure. University was an amazing time, both at the undergrad, but also graduate school. You and I went to university about the same time, and we kind of learned things in individual silos, in my mind, rather than collectively. I think in a way prevented rather than promoted innovation. Is that something that you would agree with, disagree with? Yeah, I think so, although I resisted that heavily. A modus operandi for me that persists today is making connections, connecting people, connecting ideas. In university, particularly in graduate research, you tend to want to take a problem and divide it up and understand the individual elements. 
My approach is always identifying those elements and putting them together in new and creative ways to drive innovation and invention. Even, you know, as I was launching my entrepreneurial career, I remember putting together a presentation that I showed a bunch of people, including my PhD supervisor. And years ago, when Bill Mantel was just starting in the Ministry of Economic Development, I remember describing this idea I had of company building, and I called it chrysalis. Chrysalis is the cocoon for a butterfly and this metamorphosis that it happens within a cocoon. But the whole idea of chrysalis was combining things and making connections in high-value, synergistic ways. That thinking was driven by a book that I read about the time called As the Future Catches You by a Harvard professor. And one of the elements in the book that really appealed to me was that human achievement is often connected to language. You know, in the early days of human existence, we drew pictures on walls in caves and that communicated something. And then kind of at the height of the ancient world, say the Egyptian world, pictures were then combined in complex ways to communicate a language, hieroglyphics. After that, in Asia, there was advancement of empires there. And those were not pictures, but they were characters that were brought together to communicate ideas. And then humans advanced. And then in Europe, language was collapsed to 26 letters or so. And that allowed the printing press and communication in a much more efficient way to create books. And then in, you know, in the 20th century, language was collapsed to zeros and ones. And that represented another advancement of society. The whole book was about biotechnology and that the new language to understand that would generate wealth and advancement was DNA, ACGT. If you could understand DNA, there was another stepping stone in human achievement. But language is really just a combination of letters into words, words into sentences, sentences into paragraphs, paragraphs into chapters. And it's just this connecting things in clever ways. Umberto Eco he always said that the greatest human invention was the metaphor because the metaphor combined the least number of letters in maximal meaning or value. If you think of something like the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, there's an incredible amount of messaging in those few words that even computers have trouble understanding. But humans get that. I guess from an early age, I was always trying to think of how do we create the metaphors of scientific development? How do we combine things in high-value ways with minimal effort and maximal efficiency? So although university might have been like that, Jim, when we were there, I really resisted it. Thank you for that. I was wondering where you were going, but you brought it back quite nicely. <laughs> <laughs> I read that while at university, you went from being interested in science to seeing it as a career. That's the path you followed. But was there a eureka moment or was it just a gradual realization that science was going to be the career path? And you mentioned it from an early age, but was it codified in year three where you went, yeah, this is my path? No, I mean, I think I knew when I was four that I wanted to be a scientist. You know, I loved all aspects of school and realized that communication and being creative, almost the art of science was important in addition to pure science. If I were to think of a turning point, though, it would have been when I was an undergrad meeting graduate students who were the tutorial assistants for some of my courses. 
and learning about the research that they were doing and becoming absolutely fascinated with these projects and asking the question, what happens to all that science? These are great developments. They're great vision behind these projects. Why are they in products? Why aren't they treating patients? In some cases they are. I just didn't know about that. But it was really at that time that I became dedicated and committed to trying to figure out how you take great science in academia and how do you scale it and industrialize it and make a company out of it. So I think that's the Eureka moment I went through. It wasn't about science or something else. It was more about how can you leverage great science to do what Alexander Graham Bell did, create products. You graduated in 1991 with a Bachelor of Sciences degree in chemical engineering, as we mentioned. And correct me if I'm wrong, you immediately jumped into your PhD? I started a master's and then the scope of the project became big enough that it just made sense to roll it into a PhD. I started a master's and then moved into PhD after about a year. What was your thesis about? The title of my PhD is Conformal Coding of Mammalian Cells at a Liquid-Liquid Interface. It was all about creating a new way of coding cells so that they could be used as products. And in this case, it was islets to deliver insulin, you know, as a living product. But back then, we didn't have human stem cells to work with. So the idea was to take pig islets and put them into humans. But the problem is pig islets get rejected and so the idea of the coding was to prevent that rejection from happening with a very thin coding. There were other technologies where there were capsules that were thick and you couldn't get enough glucose in there to keep the cells alive or get the insulin out. So the whole premise of my product was how do we engineer a way to coat these cells so that you could get a functional pig-based islet to treat diabetes? I guess looking back, laying the groundwork for the career... While you were doing your PhD, you also started volunteering in a pretty big way. Was it BDT, that the organization that you first started with? Biodiscovery Toronto was one of the first nonprofits I volunteered for. But BDT was when I had already started a company. And so I was starting to contribute to these public-private partnerships with a small company mind a high-tech, early-stage startup company contribution. So Biodiscovery Toronto was part of that. There were other exposure and contributions to these nonprofits or public-private partnerships. And I think that CCRM that I created 12 years ago and now work for is a public-private partnership and a nonprofit. And I think these early experiences volunteering formed the model that ultimately became CCRM. For me, volunteering became an important way to build network. I'm a big proponent of people thinking about network, not networking in that schmoozy cocktail reception networking. I'm talking about building connections with people and highly networked individuals. I think that drives success in all forms. Volunteering is a great way to do that in a trust-driven environment, and that type of volunteering work generated all kinds of returns for me in my career. I was looking at the list of organizations that you've dedicated a lot of time towards assisting. It's an impressive list. You give a lot of your time to a, a number of organizations, and I'm sure they're very thankful for the assistance. I was very pleasantly surprised to see how much time you donate, and I was wondering, how do you find the time? 
It's important to me, but it's actually important to the organizations I work for because it ultimately is the driver of that connectivity and networking. I probably volunteer too much. I think at any given time, I'm on five or six or seven volunteer boards. I coached hockey and soccer. I just think that volunteering, giving time, and serving the community is actually the best conduit for getting something back from the community. And I've had so many people step up and help me over the years and became so educated about things and problems and challenges and solutions and got insights all from the connectivity from volunteering. The contribution of that service and social aspect of it the payback to me personally and to the organizations I work for is many, many fold. It's built into my modus operandi to do that. What a great part of your story. Thank you for sharing that. Your thesis supervisor at U of T was Professor Michael Sefton, and I understand his area of research is in biomaterials and biomedical engineering. Could you tell us a bit about him? An amazing leader in the community, developed an amazing reputation globally, and I wanted to work with Michael because he was creating bioartificial organs, and this became my thesis. He was a great example for me of associating yourself with a highly networked individual. Michael, through the success of his work and his reputation, was maybe one step away or two from all the leaders in the space in the world. And he was someone who was always traveling the world, giving presentations, and that showed me that this network building, this connectivity, the best way to build your network is actually to connect with those that are highly networked. It's kind of like the Google model. Google is the main hub, and if you connect to it, you connect to everything else. So Michael had all those really important elements of a thesis supervisor, leading edge, great reputation, brilliant. He was hard, though. I like that, too. But I remember him asking when I went to interview him to be a student. He said, if you want to be a biomedical engineer, when you graduate, you're going to have to go somewhere else in the world to work. There's no industry here. You're going to have to go to the States. And I said, that's okay. I'll just start a company and give myself a job. That was really cocky at the time and maybe a bit naive, which was good. But I think Michael liked that attitude. And we worked forever together building ecosystem and industry. And, and we created a company together that I led for 12 years after graduating. And there was just this connection there of mutual respect and mentorship and collaboration on tough challenges. I still see Michael for lunch regularly and we continue to work together. And so it's been a lifelong friendship and partnership. The company that you co-founded was Ryman Therapeutics. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, Ramon Therapeutics. Ramon is Hebrew for pomegranate. And if you look at a pomegranate open, it looks like there are blood vessels around the beads. The founding technology for Ramon was an angiogenic polymer. When I was doing my thesis, everyone was trying to create biomaterials that were inert, which is kind of impossible. But one of my fellow grad students, Julie Babinsey was her name, she had observed blood vessels growing around these polymers that we were working with. So Michael and I kind of crafted this idea of a therapeutic polymer. So a polymer that could induce drug-like activity, like inducing blood vessels. And we invented two or three others of these over the course of Ryman's development as a company. You were with Ryman for 10 years? Probably 12 years. And why did you leave? 
the company changed control, the board changed. There was kind of a difference of vision moving forward. I think it happens a lot to companies. For me, that 12 years was 100 MBAs layered on top of each other. It taught me everything from early stage development to financing to regulatory. We had received FDA of approval for the concept of a therapeutic polymer, this idea of a solid drug. There was incredible learnings, but the company just hit a point where the different stakeholders had different visions. For me, though, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I didn't make a billion dollars off of Ramon, but I got a 10 billion in education. It really was the foundation for what happened a couple years later after that was crafting CCRM on the back of all that in the trenches learning to be an experiment for what I really wanted to do was figure out how to take technology and get it out of university and create companies and have an impact. Hi, it's Jim. We hope you're enjoying today's show, and if you're new to NGB Ideas, we'd like to explain a bit more about, well, what we're about. NGB Ideas is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. This is an in-person event at the Hamilton Convention Centre on the first Monday in October. The summit brings together industry leaders from coast to coast to help build cross-country and cross-sector connections. But what it's really about is raising money to support a great cause, which is McMaster Children's Hospital. If you're an industry supplier, a, a startup, a scaling biotech company, an investor, an academic, or just someone who's interested in what is going on in Canada's life sciences sector, we invite you to attend. For details and to purchase tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. You had a, a stop at Mars as a director of Mars Innovation. Was that the forerunner to TIA? I was one of the founding board members of Mars Innovation, which was one of the early CSERs. CCRM was a CSER as well. I was on the board there for about seven years. But when the idea of creating a regenerative medicine center of excellence happened, I worked with Mars Innovation to kind of come up with the business plan and found it. So I was on the board, but I did some work with Mars Innovation too that ultimately led to CCRM. You know, in that time as well, did some consulting startup companies and stuff like that. It was kind of a time for me to reflect on everything I'd learned and help others until this idea of CCRM solidified. That's been 13 years since then. So that was 2010, and I was wondering how the idea got on your radar. So you were part of the boards, it was being discussed, and you were involved in the creation. What was it about the opportunity that got you excited? It was in my area of scientific research, which was exciting. I love the idea of the public-private partnership, having participated and supported a number of those. It's kind of like going through these doors. I'm not sure at the time I was thinking of the next 14 years being there. I wanted to help. Mars Innovation is a support organization, so it was being asked to support the local academics. So they were really the drivers of it through government funding. And then the stem cell network was also part of coming together to say, hey, maybe it's time to build an industry around regenerative medicine, a science with incredible legacy in Canada and Toronto stem cells were discovered in Toronto in the 60s. It was kind of the timing was right. 
And boy, was that ever lucky. You know, talk about going through doors. I've been, and all of us at CCRM have been involved in this renaissance and this age of discovery on the back of many decades of science, but where a real industry has emerged. I mean, what dumb luck to be a part of the hottest areas in life sciences and biotechnology. That's kind of my philosophy is you just go through a door and you make the best of it. Rafi Hofstein was the CEO of Mars Innovation at that time. And Rafi said, Mike, you're supporting this. Why don't you lead it? And I was like, okay. I mean, that kind of interesting. And then he made me think about it. I kind of give Rafi credit for nudging me to really commit to it. And for me, you know, I do things in 10-year chunks. I was in university for 10 years. I did Ramon for 12 years. I've been in CCRM for 13. This is kind of my dad, right? When you commit to something, you commit to it. You don't flip every two years and develop your career within a larger cause. CCRM has been one of those decade-plus-long causes. So, you know, my resume is not filled with dozens and dozens of career things. It's filled with dozens of volunteering and activities and initiatives, but it's really centered around three phases of high commitment and loyalty to cause. That is very cool. CCRM is a not-for-profit organization that was established in 2011, and it's the commercialization partner of Medicine by Design and hosted by the University of Toronto, correct? University of Toronto was a founding member of the nonprofit alongside SickKids and University Health Network and the Ottawa Hospital right. Research Institutes and others. There's this kind of academic owners of the nonprofit that came together realizing that we needed to build a vehicle for commercializing in this very specific area of cell and gene therapy. Medicine by Design came later as a partnership where we continue to be their commercialization partner. Medicine by Design was one of the many partnerships that have enabled CCRM over time. But at the founding, it was really great science, lots of opportunity, global reputation. How do we actually create impact from this? How do we create economic benefits for Canada? And how do we create health benefits for Canadians in an area that these living therapies, products made of cells, you know, inevitably going to be the future of medicine how do we make sure that Canada is a leader in that and that we generate those benefits? Regenerative medicine, you know, cell and gene therapy is the emerging industry, I think, amongst all others. And it's at the leading edge of the future of medicine. Why is that important for our listeners? It's important in so many different ways. Here's a place where Canadians have been excellent in the science. How do we make sure that we benefit from that not only for Canadian the health, but how do we generate economic benefit that can stay in Canada to drive a sustainable innovation ecosystem? Let's not give away our excellence in the science and let others benefit from it. This takes me right back to Alexander Graham Bell. Most of the economic benefits of his inventions went elsewhere. Insulin was discovered at the University of Toronto in the 20s, but most of the economic benefit accrued to other companies and other entities. So let's think about it differently. Let's make certain that we build in and around our great science. We can't hoard our innovations in Canada. The market size of Canada is too small. But how do we make sure we build an ecosystem and receptor capacity for inventions so that globally-minded Canadian companies can advance them, we can sell them abroad, we can build clinical infrastructure to add value to them here? How do we do manufacturing? 
How do you build all these elements into a strategy that creates benefit to Canada? Not by hoarding it in Canada or just doing everything in Canada or working just with Canadian innovations, but how do we lead that activity? You know, I could talk for hours and hours about those principles, but that's the crux of it. Canada has been great at innovation, but terrible at commercialization. And you and your team and other organizations are finally helping the general public and government see a new path that is going to help our economy in so many ways. CCRM is a leading global commercial hub for regenerative medicine and cell and gene therapy. And you've partnered with top research institutes in Canada and abroad, along with a consortium of global industry leaders. This is a huge success story, and it's not even close to being done. Last week, we announced the launch of CCRM Nordic. It's about being the leader of a global enterprise. That's where we get scale. We can't rely on the Canadian market. Cell therapies are going to be advanced and commercialized around the world. Why would we not want to play a role in that happening and take a leadership position so that Canadian stakeholders, Canadian innovation, Canadian leadership has its hands or the tentacles on amazing things happening all over the world? It's not about hoarding it all in Canada. It's about building a global ecosystem, a global market. But let's make sure we're there and that we get some benefit to that because then we can reinvest that benefit back into our ecosystem here and make it sustainable, do more around self-therapy, but also invest in other great Canadian innovations that'll happen along the way. You know, in the past, the number of trees in Canada versus the number of people was very high. So we could just cut the trees down sell them and then allow someone else to make furniture out of the trees and then we buy back the furniture at 10 times the cost. We can't do that with our ideas and our innovation because we only have 37 million brains in Canada. Take India or China. There's more geniuses in China than there are people in North America. We have to find ways to do what I said earlier, make connections put our brains together and our resources in ever creative and value creating ways so that we're creating that ecosystem that we can take our ideas and create value from it and benefit from that value. We can't just do what we did with trees in the past because we had millions of them. We can't just have an idea and just give it away and send it somewhere else. It'll come back as a high cost product that we have to buy to treat Canadians. At least let's add as much value as we can in Canada and get a return on that so that we get our fair share. What a great segue into my next question, which is concerning a little thing you're doing in Hamilton at the moment. You and your team recently launched a new biomanufacturing company called OmniBio. I'd appreciate you helping me understand how that came about. Could you tell us about it? CCRM is this entity driving commercialization, and it means enabling companies but it also means starting companies, scaling them, and investing in them. At the base level, CCRM is a venture developer, a company creator that has built resources to gap fill that process. Our long-term goal is to be able to catalyze investment because access to capital, as many of us talk about all the time, is a real gap in this model that we're all trying to drive forward. But on that enabling front... We, I mean, really, Peter Zanster, our chief scientific officer and professor at U of T and now out at UBC, 12 years ago, he said manufacturing is going to be the gatekeeper to success in cell and gene therapy. I mean, if you can't make these 
products at scale, it won't be successful. And and you got to realize making a product that is living is really challenging. Those products are changing. It's not like a drug that you just can isolate and put in a vial and it's chemical. Regenerative medicine products are living. They're reacting all the time to their environment. 12 years ago, we focused on manufacturing. It fit into my model of commercialization very well because manufacturing is an important receptor and ecosystem element for a sustainable ecosystem. If you're just peddling in intellectual property and licensing, that's very diffusible all over the world. But manufacturing and manufacturing jobs and infrastructure is something more sticky. We focused on manufacturing for lots of different reasons. And it started many years ago with having our team develop manufacturing technologies and platforms. But it really scaled when we did a partnership with GE Healthcare, which is now Cytiva, to build a center of excellence for process development and manufacturing technology development in Mars and downtown Toronto. And that was supported by GE Healthcare and also by FedDev Ontario. Building those enabling technologies and building that capability and then leveraging it as well to support therapeutics companies from around the world. So bringing them to Canada to take advantage of our capability to help them scale their processes became a global success. And then the next phase for us was, okay, let's make certain that we can take those technologies and actually do manufacturing in Canada, in Ontario. And that we partnered with the University Health Network that had raised some grant funding to build a clinical phase GMP facility. I was able to convince UHN that tying together that technology development with the GMP facility was a wonderful combination of things and would be unique in the world. And so we started a really important partnership with UHN to design and build that clinical phase facility, which is also in Mars. We also started to attract and serve many industry and academic clients to scale their processes. So it became a business and a business that was key importance to CCRM's sustainability. We realized that we spin out companies, therapeutics companies and other enabling companies. This became a logical spin out of CCRM into a for-profit commercial development and manufacturing organization, a CDMO, which has now become OmniaBio. You know, you don't build a commercial scale manufacturing facility in downtown Toronto. We've partnered with McMaster Innovation Park to build that factory of the future at McMaster Innovation Park and OmniaBio. We raised money and have spun out this company and it is and will be a foundational biomanufacturing asset in a leading edge area of biotechnology for Canada. It will serve North America and beyond. Our intention is to make sure it becomes a global player. It is a game changer on so many levels. A big part of CCRM in my mind is developing talent that is critically important to building the Canadian life sciences sector. I think any organization reflects what is important to its leadership. And I'm interested to know why developing talent is so important to you. Yeah, everyone talks about intellectual property and they think about patents and licensing and it's part of it. But to me, intellectual property is embedded in people. It's the ideas they have. People make inventions. People have capabilities and know-how, and it's people who get things done. For me, talent development is critical to everything. All of the success of CCRM has been wrapped around its people and the team that we've built. CCRM has now 200 plus people. 
you know, our first years where we were 95% supported by government, we're now not relying on government funding at all. I think that is one of the things I'm most proud about is this pathway to sustainability. Government needs to play a role in everything we do and we'll continue to access government to catalyze things, but we've shown that you can build a model like this. But that's the financial modeling, but it all comes down to the people. In order to continue to innovate, to create companies, to build manufacturing, to do clinical trials, to sell to the rest of the world, is all people. For me, CCRM is really at the crux of it is talent development. I can't imagine the frustrations you have personally encountered over the last decade dealing with governments and you know, private sector, and there are no shortcuts, and you haven't had a compass. How have you dealt with the highs and the lows? I think there is a compass there. It's this grand vision of a sustainable ecosystem. Lots of highs and lows. I would never criticize any of the stakeholders we've had to work with because everyone has their agendas and has their taskmasters and everyone's trying their best. And I think in general, the Canadian ecosystem is very collaborative. One of my superpowers is like cat herder. And I think that that requires patience and courage and commitment to the long term. I mean, you can't be a cat herder if you want to change teams or trains every few months. You got to really commit to the long haul. There's been ups and downs. Grit, persistence been important in keeping focused on that. You know, I think one of the important elements of being a leader in my career as CEO is an even keel. Nothing is ever as good as you think it is, and nothing is ever as bad as you think it is. I think I've always tried to portray to my team and myself is that just stick with the plan, be committed, be loyal, do your best to help people. Don't get too excited when things are going well because tomorrow there'll be a challenge. And don't get down when things are challenging or falling apart because chances are it'll be better and okay. And just keep that even keel. I think that's always just served me very well. We'd like to pause for a moment to let you know why we launched this podcast. The goal of NGB Ideas is to shine a light on leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community, but we have another goal, which is a bit more personal, and that's to raise awareness and financial support for McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. MacKids is part of Hamilton Health Sciences, and it is the hospital that provides critical pediatric care to families in need within Waterloo, Gray, Wellington, Brant, Norfolk, Haldeman, Hamilton Wentworth and Niagara counties. Now, that's a big area. And if, if you're looking to support a worthy cause, we'd like to ask that you consider supporting McMaster Children's Hospital. For more information, please go to hamiltonhealth.ca slash MacKids. That's M-A-C-K-I-D-S. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. I've read that you believe you've got the best job in the world, and if that is the case, what's the most challenging part of your job? First of all, I do have the best job in the world, just because it's so much fun and so satisfying. And but I would say the biggest challenge is aligning interests. Technology is challenging but straightforward, and you can find good things. If you have great ideas, financing will come into place. The people are the challenging part. I'm kind of getting close in my career now where... And there's a venture capitalist in the United States who has developed this theory where you get to a point where you don't have to work with difficult people. 
20% of the people make 80% of the work. Eventually you get to a point where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to work with those people anymore. There's so many people out there that want to work together, that want to progress things. For me, it's always been about understanding the challenges they have, the risks they're willing to take in aligning interest. That's the greatest challenge is having a process like that, that ultimately ties to people. People are the greatest assets. Everything's talent and everything's talent development, but that also represents the greatest challenge. Because every once in a while, their person gets thrown into the mix that really throws you for a loop and makes it hard. Good answer. You mentioned technology. Artificial intelligence is cutting across everything we do these days. I wonder if it's affected your sector yet, and if so, to what degree? It's starting to affect the sector. I wouldn't say that it is deeply impactful at this stage, but it will be. Because we generate so much data in manufacturing and clinical and that. We're all thinking about it and how to leverage, particularly Canada and Toronto's strengths in artificial intelligence. When I think of artificial intelligence and Ajay Agarwal at U of T talks about AI as being lowering the cost of prediction. Computers lowered the cost of arithmetic. AI is just about doing prediction on a massive scale. It kind of makes it a little less scary in that way the same way that computers were scary, but all that computers do is do math. They just calculate on grand scale. And ultimately, in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it took a lot of people to do the math to drive that industry forward, and then computers really make it cheap. It sometimes seems like AI is making judgment, but humans are pretty good at judging, and AI seems like it's making judgment calls, and maybe that'll be the next phase is judgment, but AI is just about prediction. And you need good data to teach AI. This is the great opportunity in places like Canada and with CCRM and others is leveraging our data to make better predictions. At CCRM, we haven't yet embarked on very deep and highly connected AI proposals or initiatives yet, but it's coming. We talked a moment ago about highs and lows. I'd like to ask what you think has been your best mistake. Is there something that did not work out as you intended or turned out to be a blessing in disguise? There's lots of them. My transition from Ramon to CCRM was just amazing blessing. It allowed me to think about not one company to create, but a process for launching dozens of companies. And then now that has led to not just thinking about a model to create dozens of companies, but hubs around the world that will each create dozens of companies to create an industry. There's been this one company focus to a model to create many companies to now hubs to create many companies. My wife looks at me and goes, my goodness, why are you doing that? Creating one company and launching a company was challenging. Why are you thinking about scale this way? I guess I just trying to think big and create scale and sustainability. For me, obviously, transitioning from Ramon years ago, it seemed that the day of it, it was a failure. It didn't work. I wasn't part of the plan forward anymore. Within 36 hours, I was on to the next thing, and it led to amazing things. I think that's a lesson for anyone, again, about highs and lows, is that it's all about your attitude. Go through that door, so to speak. If you could turn back the clock, what advice would you give to your younger self and or any listeners who may just be starting out their careers or graduating from university? I think the appreciation of network. Everything happens through people. 
companies are combinations of products that are combinations of technologies, which are combinations of ideas, ecosystems or networks. Really thinking about how you're connecting to the world, I think is a valuable lesson. I think I got that pretty early on, but didn't really recognize it. A lot of that network is through people and you have to be good to people and help them. And I think that comes back to the volunteering. Volunteering is this the ultimate example of service to your community and it just pays back dividends. So I think those are lessons. I would be pushing myself on those earlier if I were to go back in time. Let's go into the future. Where do you think cell and gene therapy and regenerative medicine will be in the next five to 10 years? What does it look like? It's going to become a mainstay platform of products. You know, you have drugs, devices, biologics. These living therapies will be included in that group. We're going to show examples of durable treatments for the first time. What I mean there is cures for disease, not just treating symptoms. So that's transformational and revolutionary for the healthcare industry. You know, you get a one-time treatment that'll cure your cancer or cure your diabetes or whatever. Along with that will become major transformations in delivering healthcare because these products are different and also paying for them. When you have a drug that you go to the pharmacy for every few weeks, there's a payment of that treatment over many years. If you get a new organ or the new cells that will treat your cancer, they're expensive on day one, but someone has to pay for them. So the payment structure and reimbursement regulatory, all this is going to transform medicine and healthcare in many, many ways. I never thought about it in that respect. I was going to ask, what is the biggest obstacle to getting it to the next level? And I think you just touched on one of them. Is there another in your mind? We might look back and describe the development of these products and their adoption as one of the greatest examples of human collaboration globally ever. It requires all kinds of different elements to come together. In the last few years, with some of the success of these products, particularly in treating cancer, there's been an influx of capital. Access to capital, I think, is an important component. The CCRM model is all building towards access to capital, building a machine that will attract capital. So I think our mission at CCRM is well aligned with that global need to make certain that we fund and finance this great collaborative effort globally. I'd say that would be it, aside the talent development. But, you know, talent will develop naturally alongside the growth of this industry. I'd like to pivot to your personal life for a moment. We all have a bucket list. What is on yours? Someday I got to get to space because <laughs> I wanted to be an astronaut. I always tell my family and my friends that if someone offered me a seat in a rocket tomorrow, I'd give up everything and go on it. My wife doesn't like to hear that. Going to space would be one. I love to travel and meet people. And there's so much to learn from diversity and diverse perspectives and people from all over the world. There are lots of places in the world that I've been to, but lots of places I haven't been to. So there's a lot of bucket lists around travel. You know, in the end, I want CCRM to be a globally relevant example of public-private partnership because I think that the era of the pure nonprofit is gone. The, these hybrid organizations, public-private partnerships where there's true benefit to all stakeholders is the way of the future. I want to be part of a group of individuals that show this evolution of corporation to be stakeholder benefit, not shareholder benefit, where employees benefit, customers benefit, 
society benefits, investors benefit too. There's a new model for shared benefit. That's a great lead in to my final question this morning, sir. What's the next great big idea on the horizon of Michael May? I think my last answer actually leads into that. There's more to come and you ain't seen nothing yet. It's all about this public-private ship model and demonstrating what collaboration can happen from it. We're working on that. I think that tied to capital is going to be a really interesting outcome, hopefully, of what we're working on now. I'm sure there will be many more announcements. I look forward to hearing about them. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's my pleasure, Jim. It's fun. That was Michael May, President and CEO of the Centre for Commercialization of Regenerative Medicine in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about Michael and his team, please go to ccrm.ca. You can also follow them on social at ccrm underscore ca, and you can find us on social at Lab Occupier. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to contact us, my email is jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D dot com. Thanks for listening. 